0: It is often said that we are living through the sixth mass extinction event in the Earth's history. But unlike previous mass extinctions, this one is of our own making. In his timely and fascinating new book, Catastrophic Thinking, David Sipkovsky delves into the history of this idea. When did human beings first come to believe that some organisms truly disappeared from the face of the globe? And how did they begin to understand the complex biological processes that cause entire species to go extinct? Finally, what led geologists and paleontologists to believe that Earth history is punctuated by dramatic moments of biological upheaval in which entire ecosystems are almost completely wiped out and replaced with something new? To answer these questions, Sikorsky traces the cultural and intellectual history of what he calls an extinction imaginary from the 18th century into the present day. In so doing, he makes a powerful argument that the history of extinction reflects how our social anxieties and cultural preoccupations have changed over time. To quote him directly, the way that we understand extinction, the extinction imaginary of any given time, is ultimately tied to the way that we conceive of the basic stability and security of the continued existence of our own species. In particular, he shows how changing ideas about the value of diversity have shaped the history of extinction. If it seems self-evident to most of us now that diverse ecosystems and societies are intrinsically valuable, that is a relatively recent development. In fact, Sapkowski argues, the way that we value diversity depends crucially on our sense that it is precarious, that it is something actively threatened, and that its loss could have profound consequences. In Catastrophic Thinking, Sapkowski uncovers how and why we learn to value diversity as a precious resource at the same time that we learn to think catastrophically about extinction. This is a fabulous book, expertly weaving cultural and intellectual history into a rich tapestry of ideas about loss, precarity, and diversity, whose relevance and significance can hardly be overstated. Sapkowski takes readers on an eye-opening journey into a history that remains surprisingly little known, despite its obvious importance given the catastrophic biodiversity crisis we currently face. It's an absolute pleasure to read. Welcome, David, to new books in science, technology, and society. Thank you for having me, Lucas. So why don't we start by just having you tell us a little bit about how you came to the project that you write about in your new book.
1: Sure. Um, So about nearly 10 years ago now, I guess eight years ago, I published a book, Rereading the Fossil Record, which was a kind of intellectual and um, scientific history of paleontology and paleobiology in the 20th century. And it dealt with a lot of the scientific themes that appear in my new book, things like mass extinctions and biodiversity over time, um, but in a very, I guess you could say, internalist kind of context. Um, And I really felt that there were important cultural considerations that needed to be taken into account. Um, I was particularly interested in the reasons why paleontologists, but also kind of people in the broader culture at large, either accepted or didn't accept particular ideas or attitudes about extinction, particularly mass extinction, at different times. So it's probably somewhat familiar to listeners, but maybe not to everybody, um, that uh, the notion of mass extinction, right? The the idea that large groups of taxa, of species, genera, families, etc., could become extinct in a coordinated fashion fairly suddenly you know, particular moments in the fossil record, that idea was was actually first introduced right at the beginning of scientific acceptance of extinction. Um, uh, Georges Cuvier, the French naturalist, introduced that idea in the very early 19th century, and it came to be known as catastrophism because Cuvier talked about these massive revolutions that periodically alter the composition of the earth itself and, and life on earth. But that, that idea was pretty quickly rejected by Uh, the Scottish geologist Charles Lyell, and, of course, Charles Darwin. And the mainstream attitude among not just paleontologists, but I think biologists in general over the next about 100 years was that these mass extinctions really either don't happen at all or aren't a significant feature in the history of life. And then all of a sudden, there was a kind of rebirth of catastrophism in the late 1970s, early 1980s, Uh, where mass extinctions were reintroduced as important uh, events in the history of life, uh, perhaps even events that have definitively shaped the Earth's current biota. And then, of course, this dovetailed with interest in current biodiversity, concerns about a biodiversity crisis that we're living in now, which has been labeled by some people to be a sixth extinction. So the question is you know why does why did this shift take place right going from you know a kind of a catastrophist view 200 years ago to uh what you know kind of was characterized as in contrast as a uniformitarian view in which mass extinctions don't really take place for the later 19th century and much of the 20th century to back to a catastrophist view and you know all along I couldn't help thinking that there had to be really important cultural political, social influences at play here as well. And I think that most historians of science now accept that you can't really neatly separate scientific, cultural, and political you know, factors from one another. But this seemed like a really interesting case study to try to look at how these, a particular confluence of both scientific and broader cultural factors took shape. Like, for example, I couldn't help but think that um, a key influence on somebody like Cuvier promoting a theory of catastrophic mass extinctions, which he, by the way, called revolutions, um, you know, having himself lived through the French Revolution, that that had to be significant, that people like uh, Lyle and Darwin, other uh, particularly English naturalists, kind of rejecting a catastrophic view in favor of one that's much more kind of continuous and progressive. Um, in the Victorian era, that that had to be significant, and then that the rekindling of catastrophism sort of at the height of the Cold War, so it really might reflect late Cold War anxieties, you know, that was always a hypothesis in the back of my head. So in some ways, this book was a a means to test the hypothesis, but it was also, of course, motivated by what Naomi Oreskes calls, you know, motivational motivational or methodological presentism. I think it's motivational presentism. Um, uh, in historians that that maybe we write about issues historically, that we historicize issues that are of, you know, keen contemporary interest. Well, obviously, in the era of the so-called Anthropocene, we're very concerned about things like climate change, biodiversity loss, perhaps the sixth mass mass extinction. This seemed like a story that had particular relevance. So it wasn't just you know testing out kind of um, you know a hypothesis about. Uh, the interaction between culture and science, it was one that is of particular relevance to our society. So this book had really been kind of percolating in the back of my head for quite a long time. And um, I finally had the time to sit down and, and, and work through it. And uh, you know, it arrived at a moment when I think we're all thinking a little bit catastrophically. And that's a, a deeper message is that the way that we think about the present and the future is often very much tied to our imaginations about the past, right? And in the book, I talk about a um, an extinction imaginary because thinking about extinction doesn't just lead us to, you know, make particular choices. It's not just a matter of a kind of rational scientific calculus. It's a matter of how we imagine certain things about ourselves and our own societies. And one of the crucial things uh, that I argue this extinction imaginary is tied to is the way that we understand diversity, both biological and cultural.
0: So one thing that is super interesting about your book is that one of the main characters in this neo-catastrophist moment in kind of the second half of the 20th century, one of the protagonists of the kind of legitimization of catastrophist thinking again, is your own father, your late father, Jack Sapkowski. And as someone who is himself the child of a paleontologist, my father is also a paleontologist. I was, although I've not written about the kind of research that my father does.
1: And uh, and I'm just going to interject Olivier Rippel here and a historian and philosopher of science of some, I think, distinction. I really enjoy his work on a particularly early 20th century biology in Nazi fascist context. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Anyway, thank you, David. So I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about how you're... So when I asked you about how you came to the project, you gave a sort of intellectual biography that started with uh, the previous book that you wrote, in which your father also plays an important role, and how that kind of story that you told in that book led you to thinking in broader cultural terms about extinction. But I want to ask you just more generally like how your family history and your personal history... Impacted, or just how do you think about the way that your your own personal relationship with your late father has led you to the kinds of questions that you ask? And if that's something that, anyway, just it, how you deal with those personal questions sure. in your scholarly research? Sure. Okay. Well, we're gonna
1: get we're gonna get personal right away. That sounds good. Um, <laughs> so, my father, yes, Jack Zybkoski, was a, a paleobiologist who was involved uh, in basically the um, a turn in the late 1970s, early 1980s towards the quantification of the fossil past. He built one of the first, actually the first uh, computer database of the fossil record and used that database to analyze patterns in the fossil record. And among other things, he and his colleague at the University of Chicago, Dave Raup, the late Dave Raup, who passed away just a couple of years ago, Um, while I was finishing the book. In fact, one of the people to whom the book is dedicated is is Dave Raup. He was a really wonderful guy who who gave me a lot of help with the book towards the end. They uh, documented the existence of the so-called big five mass extinctions in the Earth's past, the most recent of which was the extinction at the, I'm going to still call it Cretaceous tertiary boundary, even though I'm sure that um, geologists listening will object to that. um, When the dinosaurs became extinct, Um, you know, these were signals that had been detected in the stratigraphic record by paleontologists for, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years, Um, but they were able to, Raup and and my dad were able to document, you know, the kind of the broader contours of these events by looking at the, at the, um, at fossil data uh, from the marine It's
0: such an interesting story. Do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about this sort of backbreaking research that your father did? Like where this data actually came from? How yeah. did you gather this data?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long story, and I'll try not to be long about it. And interested readers, you can learn a little bit about it in this book. I do tell the story in this book if you really want to dig into it. My, my um, rereading The Fossil Record really, really goes into it. But essentially, um, in the early 1970s, a group of, of maverick paleontologists, including Stephen Jay Gould, Dave Raup, who I mentioned, uh, Thomas Schopf, who was an important paleontologist who died when he was only 44 years old, I think, in the early 1980s, so not many people know about him, all got together. And we're interested in trying to figure out new approaches to paleontology that would kind of make paleontology more like physics or something like that. Right? They would use a lot of um, computer techniques, um, uh, advanced statistical techniques to kind of model the fossil, the fossil past. And um, one of the things that they got very interested in doing was actually simulating evolution, like so simulating uh, the process by which speciation and extinction occur using some fairly simple computer models. Um, At the same time, though, uh, Gould in particular was very interested in trying to apply these techniques to real fossil data. The problem was there wasn't any any large, high-quality database available. I mean, there were a, a lot of older data sources that existed in various paper formats scattered all over the world. There had been some efforts, particularly in the 19th century, but also in the 20th century to, to create these compendia of uh, taxonomic groups, of fossil taxonomic groups. But um, nothing existed that was accessible you know, digitally at that point. And so my dad, who was a graduate student at Harvard and working with, with Steve Gould on a completely unrelated dissertation project, got tasked with doing that. My dad said, hey, grad student, here, you do this. So my dad started this process ostensibly just to kind of help out with Gould and Schopf and Raup's project, and eventually he became a collaborator. But his work on this actually outlived that project, which they dropped within a few years. And throughout the later 1970s, my dad kind of worked fairly tirelessly kind of on the side right? Not really during his normal working hours to assemble a database drawn from all the paper documentation that existed kind of everywhere in the world. I mean, he would visit libraries in other countries when he traveled to conferences and things like that. Um, right. I mean, this is all basically pre-internet. I mean, you know, DARPA net existed, but this was pre-internet really. So he had to do this. Uh, he wrote a, a, a funny essay about this called 10 Years in the Library, um, which talks about this this effort. And he he painstakingly assembled this This database, which is really quite simple. It was just first and last appearances of taxonomic groups. He began at the family level and ultimately moved down to the genus level. Species level is just, there's not reliable enough data um, uh, at at, at that level. It's too fragmentary. And ultimately, uh, he, he first did it by hand on yellow legal pads. And I can still remember him sitting in front of the TV, like watching a football game or something just, you know, entering in this information because it's really boring. Eventually he put it into a computer um, just to basically what, you know, what would be like an Excel file now. I mean, just a very simple, a very simple database um, which came to be known as the Sipkowski database, which he distributed to friends via floppy disks. And eventually you could buy it. Uh, it's gone through several, several iterations. It's now, it now lives in a very, very different form online as, um, the paleobiology database. Actually, there are two paleobiology databases. That's an interesting story because the people who, who uh, managed that database couldn't get along. And so there, um, there are now two online databases that sort of claim the, to be descendants of my dad's original data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, um, but you know, uh, it was, it was the start of an era in which some paleontologists or paleobiologists essentially became informaticians, right? Um, There was a kind of informatics turn that my dad and Dave Raup, whose importance I really don't want to diminish at all, he was really a a quite remarkable scientist, um, kind of spurred this and it also became known as the Chicago School of of Paleontology because a lot of this happened at the University of Chicago and and current faculty kind of still maintain that, Dave Jablonski and Michael Foote in particular. Um, still do this kind of work, and and um, it basically follows up on trends that began in ecology, for example, in the nineteen fifties with um, uh, with uh, G Evelyn Hutchinson at Yale, uh, who who advised important people like um, Robert MacArthur and um, and and sort of tangentially. Um, Wilson and and Daniel Simberloff, uh, a, a kind of modeling heuristic approach to analyzing uh, ecological or or, or biological data sets, and and you know my my dad and others kind of picked that up and carried it on into paleontology, uh, and and it really is the foundation for the way that we understand not just the the dynamics of how mass extinctions happened or when they happened or that they happened, but also what their consequences are. So people like, I mean, my dad did some of this work, but people like Jablonski have really carried this further, really analyzing the important and complex ecological dynamics and evolutionary consequences of mass extinctions, which as the later chapters of catastrophic thinking argue was foundational for the way that we currently understand biological diversity and the threat of of a potential sixth extinction.
0: So that leads directly into the next question I wanted to ask, so thank you, which is about the connection between extinction, what you call the extinction imaginary, and the way that we as a culture, as a society, value diversity. So where do you see that connection? How do you understand that connection? And what's the importance of the values that we ascribe or do not ascribe to diversity for the extinction imaginary.
1: Yeah, so so I, I think maybe what you're asking is uh, how do we how do I make the leap from ideas about um, well, first, what the argument is about biological diversity, and then are you asking how I make a leap from from biological diversity to perhaps how we think about cultural diversity?
0: Sure. So, uh, yeah, why don't we start with biological diversity and then you can think more, speak more broadly about diversity. Yeah, well, so the, the biological diversity argument, I think, is pretty
1: straightforward. Um, uh, in the 19th century, in the Victorian era, when people like Lyell and Darwin were really kind of figuring out how um, the fossil record might be useful for understanding not just evolution, but the ecological, we might call it, although that's anachronistic uh, arrangement of the Earth's biota, the assumption was that um, diversity, if we understand diversity simply as kind of the, um, the net uh, number of different kinds of groups of organisms alive at any given time, was a stable value, right, that Darwin famously said pretty straightforwardly in The Origin of Species that, you know, diversity has been more or less, he didn't use the term, but has been more or less stable throughout the history of life. There have more or less always been uh, essentially the same number of different taxonomic groups occupying the same number of, again, this is anachronistic ecological niches, or as Lyle or Darwin would have referred to it, stations, right? And, And he's leaning very heavily on Lyle here. This was an argument that Lyle made. Darwin justifies this view with the mechanism of natural selection. He essentially argues that extinction is going to be the consequence of natural selection in that when one group survives um, or even speciates, uh, another group is going to get pushed out and is going to become extinct. So so Lyle had argued that this was kind of happening all the time. Darwin put it into an evolutionary context with natural selection, and essentially, what you get is a is a steady state, right? And Lyle loves steady states. It's a it's a kind of dynamic equilibrium where, um, and and Lyle puts it beautifully, and I quote him, and I can't remember the exact quote offhand, so I won't try to um, I won't try to do an exact version of it. But but Lyle basically argues that you know the the extirpation of any one thing. Um, Uh, is the consequence of the survival of another. And so that becomes central to the logic of Darwin's natural selection and his bigger picture of evolution. So, So a concern about biological diversity just wasn't present among Victorian era naturalists. The assumption was that the balance of nature, which had very, very heavy quasi-religious overtones. This is an idea that goes back to Linnaeus and earlier, of course, but especially to Linnaeus, who very explicitly argued that God wouldn't suffer, you know, a diminution of a permanent diminution of, you know, species. Um, so, it has these quasi-religious overtones, and it's kind of an article of faith that you know nature basically repairs itself as it goes along. So, why worry about biological diversity, you know? Um, and, and that even extended right, in that era to political and cultural attitudes about um, imperialism, right? The idea that um, flora and fauna encountered by Europeans being, um, you know, replaced with European flora and fauna, the idea that that could be a concern, um, you know, really didn't exist, nor did much, you know, concern, much concern about the potential extermination or assimilation of cultures that Europeans encountered. And again, in the first part of the book, I document this. There are other people who've written even more extensively about these attitudes in the 19th century. Patrick Brantlinger is one person. Um, uh, Sadia Qureshi is working on, on some terrific, um, he's working on a book and has done some terrific work on this subject as well. Um, so, so, what I argue is essentially that you know diversity was not a value at the time; it was not considered something that needed to be protected. Um, and I think that you can go fairly easily from Victorian attitudes about biological diversity to Victorian attitudes about cultural diversity. At most, Victorian commenters um, argued that scientists should try to collect as much information as they could about cultures before they were exterminated um but they've they more or less viewed that 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 disappearance as inevitable like the inevitable disappearance of you know flora and fauna when faced with competition for their you know ecological stations
0: not just inevitable i mean in the book you say that it's in fact a kind of mark of progress so something that in some cases could even be celebrated which absolutely was, yeah okay. yeah
1: and and it, that's that that's absolutely right and in fact um uh Alfred Russell Wallace, right, who co-discovered uh, the principle of natural selection, wrote a remarkable 1864 essay, which he concluded that um, the evolution of human beings would inevitably result in a more homogeneous, human society as kind of every human group caught up to the same level of progress and he viewed this he called this as bright a paradise as ever seen by seer or poet i think is the is the line that he that he puts in there so yeah i mean this was a this was seen as a positive a positive value now i mean you obviously fast forward to the present and we don't think that way right for the most part in western societies we 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 tend not to right assume that one culture is superior to another. We certainly um, worry about the ecological stability uh, that is presented by biological diversity. And so one one thing that the book does is tries to reconstruct kind of how that happened in some broad strokes. Um, One major influence was the rediscovery of mass extinctions, right? So Darwin's logic and Lyle's logic really only works if you assume that extinction is happening piecemeal, right? If it is the flip side of of natural selection. Um, It doesn't work if you have these coordinated events in which the, you know, biota is, you know, essentially being wiped out and replaced by, you know, by something new. Um, And um, certainly not if you take the view that Extinction events have consequences by depleting the, I guess, kind of, you know, global gene pool and limiting, putting a constraint on what can potentially evolve in the future. And so from a, from a purely scientific perspective, you know, two important threads are in the 20th century, the, you know, the rediscovery of mass extinction and also um, genetic arguments, arguments made by people like Theodosius Dobzhansky in the 1940s and 1950s, that um, diversity in, in the genome, right? Um, is a kind of hedge against unexpected events, right? So, so populations that have a more diverse selection of genes are more able to withstand, say, like an environmental catastrophe or some other event that, that, that shakes up the population. And so it's very straightforward. I essentially argue that, you know, modern biodiversity thinking, you know, the kind promoted by Ed Wilson and, and, and other people beginning in the late 1980s and especially 1990s, draws directly from those two insights. First, that uh, coordinated mass extinctions do happen and are are events of such magnitude that, you know, the normal processes of natural selection can't, you know, can't really operate uh, according to their normal normal workings. And secondly, that diversity in itself, whether it's genes or anything else, can be a hedge against... Unexpected events, um, or you know, catastrophic change, and the the final piece of the puzzle is, you know, from the from the cultural standpoint, is how that argument kind of makes its way into also. I think the the cultural discourse, and one way of tracing that is just to look at discussions about what's called biocultural diversity in the that began in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands, essentially arguing that the Endangerment of languages uh, and other cultural traditions is directly analogous to biodiversity. So you can you can actually see people who are concerned about like the extinction of languages or the eradication of particular indigenous knowledge. Uh, traditions and things like that, explicitly saying this is just like biodiversity and using biodiversity as um, as an analogy. But I think deeper than that, if you just look at the you look at some of the assumptions and language around cultural diversity, it's very clear that especially that kind of genetic stability argument is is being is being used. But why do we think? On our college campuses, for example, it's good to have students from a variety of different traditions, backgrounds, social, socioeconomic status, et cetera. Well, it's it's generally argued because it's healthy, right? It's it's healthier for the system. Um and, and this is really interesting. And we, I mean, this would probably be a tangent that we don't want to, that we don't necessarily need to follow up, but um, you know, I find it very interesting that um, people who um, people who conservatives who attack affirmative action attempt to kind of use a version of that argument, right? They say, well, why should we be privileging one particular group or a couple of particular groups, let's say African-Americans or women or something like that? You know, in fact, if we really believe in diversity, we ought to have, you know, more conservatives like us or, or whatever, you know, more white, you know, we can't just have, you know, women and people of color. We need, you know, white people too, to, you know, to, to keep our diversity up. And of course, that completely misunderstands the purpose of affirmative action, which right, which is, which is not actually um, built upon the logic of diversity, but rather on the logic of, of, you know, racial justice and, 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 you know, rectifying historical wrongs. But, but it's, it's amazing the way, this thinking, I think, without a whole lot of, you know, self awareness, this essentially ecological thinking, right? Ecological thinking about diversity has crept into our cultural diversity discourse. And I mean, there's probably you know another book or books to be written more about the cultural side of things. I only sort of allude to this connection in my book, but I, I really, truly do believe that, um, you know, that that this ecological way of thinking is something that has marked our culture. Since about the early 1970s onward, you know, kind of roughly at the same time as, you know, the Green Revolution was happening and um, ecological awareness was being raised in environmentalist circles and things like that.
0: So I wanted to ask a little bit more about this cultural argument that you make, the connection that you draw between what are often quite technical and recondite conversations happening among scientists within the scientific community on the one hand and broader cultural discourse on the other hand. So we've already touched upon the connection between Victorian naturalists like Charles Lyell and Darwin thinking about natural selection, evolutionary progress, vis-a-vis the British Empire, right? imperialism. I wanted to ask about the re- kind of resurgence of catastrophic thinking, neocatastrophism in the mid 20th century, mid to late 20th century, where you draw a connection to postmodern culture, but also very strongly draw a connection to the fears about a nuclear holocaust, nuclear winter. So I wanted to ask you if you could draw out those connections a little bit more fully. So what was the kind of broader cultural context in which people like Dave Raub, your dad, Stephen Jay Gould, and others were returning to these Cuvierian catastrophist theories and how you think you can draw out these connections? Yeah, so thanks. So, what, I mean, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that this wasn't actually
1: a as sudden a shift as it might look, at least culturally. Um, one of the things that I think in the third chapter of the book I, I, I argue is that from the beginning of the 20th century onward, there's a more pessimistic turn in cultural uh, – I guess we could say um, cultural – uh self-satisfaction uh, in a sense like Europeans began to be more pessimistic about the future of their societies Europeans and Americans right so you see like a, a, a the the birth effectively of post-apocalyptic science fiction right around 1895 um and uh, and this this has close connections with what we might call a kind of pessimistic modernism that flourished you know before and after World War I um, marked by works like Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West um, that predicted that European society was decadent or in decline or degenerate um, and uh, and that there were cyclical patterns in history that governed the rise and fall of civilizations. Um, And that this was actually Um, quite closely mirrored by scientific ideas about extinction and about patterns of extinction and evolution in the fossil record. Um, You know, cyclical thinking about extinction theories like orthogenesis, et cetera, as you well know, um, were quite popular in the later 19th and early 20th centuries, particularly among paleontologists. And so, um, so basically the argument is that the, it's, The book doesn't simply argue that extinction is related to cultural attitudes about diversity, biological and cultural diversity, but also, again, about our imaginations, our hopes, and fears about the the present and the future. So that kind of Victorian positivism pretty quickly around World War I becomes a kind of pessimistic modernism, right, linked up with a pessimistic modernism. Um, and that just simply carries forward after the Second World War and into the Cold War, right? I mean, even worse things happened during the Second World War. You have the Holocaust, and you have the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and and the you know uh, extraordinary casualties that that result from that conflict. And then that kind of merges into the Cold War anxieties about nuclear annihilation, um, which provide a kind of Canvas, I think, upon which scientists are are kind of kind of paint their ideas, and I, I argue that scientists are both drawing influence from this culture. I mean, they're members of their own cultures, uh, and also contributing to it. So by the time we get to the 1970s, when people are really seriously starting to take uh, to reconsider mass extinctions, um, you're you know at the late Cold War moment where um, you know the the arsenals of the Soviet Union and the United States are at you know all time highs, and um, the the vision of the past represented by the paleontologists who are presenting you know kind of like periodic annihilations matches up pretty closely with the fears that that. People have in Western culture about the, the the present and the future, and those are and that's kind of dramatically illustrated in the 1980 uh, hypothesis that um, Louis and Walter Alvarez at all uh, presented uh, the famous asteroid extinction or um, or impact extinction hypothesis, which essentially wrote nuclear war onto the fossil record. And it's not coincidental that right Louis Alvarez. Um, the, the father of Walter Alvarez, who is a geologist, Louis Alvarez was a nuclear physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project and helped develop the hydrogen bomb. Um, and, and so um, it, what I kind of argue is that these, these cultural and scientific threads are dancing around each other for much of the 20th century and come slamming together very vividly in the 1980s in the early 1980s and this is around the time when uh, the editorial by the syndicated columnist Alan Goodman um, appeared that I talk about in my book um, uh, I don't actually have the title of that handy that uh, that editorial I can't remember what it was called but it effectively said you know does every does every um, does every culture get the um, the dinosaur extinction story it deserves um, and she argued that indeed the the impact hypothesis was the culture was the uh, dinosaur extinction hypothesis that the late 20th century deserved. And I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. So let's move, let's pull those, that thread of tapestry of threads, cultural scientific threads forward into our own time. So you end the book with current anxieties about the sixth extinction uh, and questions about whether, that is a mass extinction event that's already underway, anthropogenic mass extinction event. And you're thinking about Anthropocene. So how, um, again, these broader broader cultural anxieties, worries about diversity, biodiversity, other kinds of diversity loss, link up with scientific concerns in geology and paleontology.
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the final big arguments I make in the book is that you know these so these extinction imaginaries change over time right there are different extinction imaginaries for different cultural moments and the current extinction imaginary I argue that we are now living with in the 21st century is modified it's not the exact same one you know it's not your parents extinction uh, imaginary it's not the extinction imaginary that I grew up with as a teenager when I would you know have nightmares about you know mushroom clouds and things like that. Um, that uh, the current imaginary understands um, the catastrophe that we are experiencing as a more drawn out or perhaps slow motion catastrophe, right? So in the early 20th century, there was a a fear that like um, cycles of biological extinction and evolution, uh, human culture went through these kind of Preordained cycles, and that and that Western culture might be at the end of, of one such cycle, and that's what Spengler argued, for example, to an imaginary that um, in which you know the sudden event, right, the catastrophic event in the in the blink of an eye, uh, was the kind of dominant extinction imaginary, and reflected both uh, views of you know fears about nuclear annihilation, and. As well as, uh, you know, the sudden extinction of the dinosaurs, which which it was hypothesis, hypothesized at the time that perhaps all major mass extinction events were caused by bolide impacts, by asteroid impacts, and, and that idea has now been kind of dismissed. It's now understood that mass extinctions have have a variety of different causes. To um, a, a notion of catastrophe as, um, as being something you know, drawn out, something that we're actually living through. And this is where some of the postmodern, postmodernism gets into it um, in, in the sense that um, we have already experienced the catastrophe and we're just living out its consequences, right? And, and that slower motion notion of catastrophe fits the processes of, you know, climate change, uh, and other drivers of what what scientists suspect, um, you know, is causing the the, the current biodiversity crisis, uh, and, as well as what threatens human societies um, with sea level rise and, and and temperature change and things like that. So. Um, so what, what I kind of argue for is a succession of these different extinction imaginaries, all of which are related to, to, to one another, but which reflect kind of distinct cultural sensibilities. And I, I do very much feel that our current cultural sensibility and the one that's reflected in the Anthropocene is a kind of much more resigned and fatalistic sensibility, right? I mean, you have a slew of authors these days, you know, writing books like The Uninhabitable Earth, Um, which essentially argue that there's nothing we can really do about it. We can mitigate perhaps, but there's nothing we can do to, um, there's nothing we can really do to radically change the course that we've set ourselves on and that we're going to have to live with the consequences. And at the same time, you know, the way that scientists understand extinction as a biological and historical process um, now, now the role of climate change is, Kind of dominant as an explanation for many of the major mass extinctions of the geologic past including um, the the one that wiped out the dinosaurs um, and um, you know and this has to do with uh, the um, essentially um, environmental effects of of a of an asteroid impact, but, um, but volcanism is also implicated. So volcanoes and, and the, of course, the greatest extinction of all time, the, the Permian, the, the extinction at the end of the Permian that saw maybe as much as 95% of the Earth's standing diversity wiped out, um, is, uh, pretty robustly tied to an episode of extraordinary climate change, which, um, we may be rivaling uh, you know, in in our current moment uh, from an anthropogenic source rather than uh, a naturally occurring one in the earth.
0: So as a final question, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to return to this idea that you spoke about earlier of methodological presentism. And it's about, so the book ends with a reflection on the Anthropocene and the sixth extinction. Yeah. And I'm wondering about it, for a book that I'm going to sort of oversimplify a little bit, and it, I apologize, I'm going to put it quite pu- bluntly, but for a book that essentially argues that these ideas about extinction are socially constructed, that they're not purely scientific, they're not objective ideas, do you worry about the kind of conclusion that some readers might draw about the sixth mass extinction? That, oh, well, this is just the cultural anxiety, this isn't something that we really need to worry about. And therefore, I can go and buy the largest SUV that I might want or, you know, jet set all around the world and not have to concern myself too much with global climate change.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I think I actually make an even an even blunter point, which is that a lot of the arguments, the scientific arguments in support of the so-called sixth extinction involve some questionable um, extrapolation of of data sources, the claim that seventy four species per day are becoming extinct, for example, which E.O. Wilson kind of famously promoted, that this, you know, that that a lot of that rhetoric was was based on you know fairly questionable, tentative, um, even flimsy, one might say, um, data sources. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I I don't in any way want to dissuade people from being concerned about. You know, biological diversity about climate change um, these are the important um, the important challenges of our of our time maybe of you know the entire history of humanity um, if we're gonna you know if we're gonna survive into the next into the next century at the same time um, I think that it is healthy for our political discourse for, you know, not just academics like us, but general readers, to have a healthy appreciation of the um, political and cultural dimensions of science, and not to, you know, not to cleanly separate scientific and broader cultural discourse um, uh, in the way that you know we historians have learned, kind of, you know, not to not to do this, and so. Um, while i I absolutely don't mean to imply that um you know, that science is purely a social construct, right? that 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 knowledge about the world is um, entirely subjective or something like that in some way, i want I do want readers to bear in mind that um, you know that what our science tells us is embedded in a set of cultural values because because there are other dimensions of you know our social and political lives in which we should be skeptical of science. For example, when science and scientists are talking about things like race and other you know values that are both you know scientific and 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 cultural. Right. So um, so in other words, I guess. I want to make the case that we can, um, I guess, we can feel a greater kind of investment in the big scientific issues of our time if we have a of of a sense uh, if we have a sense of how, you know, those issues are are cultural and political as well as just scientific. Right. I mean, if if um, if if there's a clean split between science and culture, then only scientists should really be worried about. Science and only scientists should really be discussing science, and and only scientists should be allowed to be critical of science. And I think you know, in our in a healthy functioning democracy, we should all have an investment in that. And if that means if that means asking you know awkward questions, um, then I think that that's okay. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I do believe that science is a Somewhat self-correcting process, but it can only, you know, really self-correct if it, if, if we're, you know, looking at its cultural uh, impact as well as, you know, just kind of the purely intellectual, internal scientific impact as well, right? And so, science hasn't fully self-corrected on certain topics. Race is a, you know, is a big one. I'm thinking about that a lot because my next book is going to be about science and race. But, um, you know, because of this attitude that, you know, there are kind of two distinct,
0: distinct spheres. Well, thank you so much, David, and congratulations on the publication of this book. Thank you very much, Lucas. It was my pleasure, and it's great to talk to you.